Jesus, it's just so amazing the things that you do. And I guess what's most amazing is what you do in our hearts. The changes from what we were to what you want us to be is is an amazing thing. And sometimes we despair that it seems to be so incremental that we can't even measure it. And we move forward and then we slide backwards, but we know that your word promises, Lord, that um, you're accomplishing what you want in us. And so the hope is there. The certainty is there that you're in charge, not us. And because you're in charge, it won't fail. Lord, help us to understand your word. Help us to see the delight in it, the surety in it, the things that um, absolutely will come to pass and it will change us forever. And we just ask you, Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts to crawl closer to you this day in your name. Amen. Well, when Jessica was talking, and then she was talking about Abraham and Sarah, it sort of occurred to me that he could say, maybe he was saying, Greg, you're getting old. You're 78. But wait till you see what I do with Pat. (laughs) Maybe you're going to have a child. And then I was thinking, one thing's for sure, if I have a child, she's certainly not going to name name him Laughter. (laughs) Wait, but don't shake your head. (laughs) But one thing is also absolutely sure, Jesus is compassion. We're going to look at... um, The first part of Luke 7, in fact, the first 10 verses, um, I'm not sure that, well, I think the seven, I think the 10 verses will be a gracious plenty for today, and I was going to concentrate on that anyway because I wanted to leave enough time for Jessica to say what God had given her, and I'm so grateful that I did. You know, one definition that's been given to the word compassion is your pain in my heart. It's a good definition for compassion, isn't it? We can only imagine the um, kind of pain that Jesus must have felt as he ministered from place to place in Israel seeing the pain everywhere he went. And in this chapter 7 in Luke, he's faced with the agony of a dying servant that we're going to be looking at. And then later, a, a grieving widow who's lost her son also. And as they're going out of the, the town with a group of grieving people, Jesus comes from Capernaum to the city of Nain, which is 20-some miles away, just at the right time 
that if she's coming out with her group of mourners with a casket, he's coming with his group of people rejoicing with him at that moment, and that he can graciously shows compassion on this grieving widow and raises her son back to life again. And then after that, you see Jesus confronting what a confused prophet says, who happens to be John the Baptist, who's in prison some months now. We don't know how how long exactly. And John the Baptist is confused. Jesus, you came to set the people free. Well, I'm not free. I'm in prison. I'm used to wandering in the wilderness as my home, and now I'm confined in a prison cell. And doesn't this uh, being set free apply to me too? And it's easy to think, well, John the Baptist, you above all people should not show doubt. But we're we're confusing perfection with humanity. And uh, humanity gets confused. It doesn't doubt, but it gets confused. And John is confused. And Jesus shows compassion to him too because he doesn't rebuke John. He just says, you people go and tell John what you've seen. The dead are being raised. The blind are seeing. All of these different things. Tell John what you see. And he doesn't condemn John at all. He shows compassion to him. Because compassion does not measure, it ministers. And then the last thing in the chapter is, is a repentant sinner. The woman that comes to the, to the dinner that a Pharisee has invited Jesus to come to. And she weeps and washes her, his feet with her tears and puts perfume on his feet. And, of course, the Pharisee and the people there are going, he can't really be a prophet because if he was a prophet, he'd know that this woman's a sinner. Well, Jesus knows who she is. And he also knows who the Pharisees are. You know, it's been said that justice seeks out only the merits of the case. But pity only responds, or pity only regards the need. And Jesus regards the need and he shows pity. And his compassion is not small, but it's measureless. So it was compassion and not justice that moved Jesus, who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. After Jesus' sermon in Luke 6, which is called the Sermon on the Plain, he returns to Capernaum which was really the headquarters of much of Jesus' ministry. You may recall that Jesus had done many miracles in Capernaum before he went to Nazareth. And it was there in Nazareth that he upset the Jews so much that they wanted to kill him. 
And of course, they were not able to. And it's not recorded that Jesus ever returned to Nazareth again. Capernaum is different. And Jesus returns there many times. There's some evidence that there was a Roman garrison in Capernaum. And if there was, then a lot of the the Roman soldiers there would have been familiar with some of the miracles associated with Jesus. Because it said that he did many things in Capernaum and the people in Nazareth were jealous. That if you've done this at Capernaum, why don't you do it in Nazareth too? But even though Capernaum was favored by Jesus, there was a dire warning given to it by the Lord because of its lack of repentance later on. In Luke 10, Jesus says, as for, and then for, as for you, Capernaum, or it says, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. Now, this statement is found in Luke 10, where Jesus where Jesus names three ancient cities that had been that had been judged by God: Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. And he uses these three ancient cities to warn three cities of his time. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And these three cities had been given more privilege than these three ancient cities. And therefore they had more responsibility. If Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon were destroyed... How could Chorazim, Bethsaida, and Capernaum escape? All this was linked to the disciples being sent out in chapter 10, where Jesus sends his disciples out, 70 of them, to go to the different cities. And this is where, as far as Luke 7 and Luke 10, I look at these things and I think, you know, I could write a book as big as the Bible of all the things that I missed the first ten times I read the Bible. (laughs) Because in Luke 10 it says, Now after this the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. I never saw that before. So he's sending them to the cities that he's going, to, he's going to follow them afterwards. So it's not just a random place that he's sending them. They're prescribed cities that Jesus is planning to go to, but he sends them there first. And what does he tell them? If they accept you, then you stay in their home, you eat their food, you bless them. And if they don't, you wipe the dust off your feet and get away from them. Is this in preparation to Jesus going there or maybe not going there because they're his ambassadors? And what does scripture say? If they, if they receive me, they receive, you know, if they receive you, they receive me. If they reject you, they reject me. 
And if they reject me, they are rejecting the one who sent me, which is the Father. So they reject my ambassadors, they reject me, and if they reject me, they reject God. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Well, all these things makes it hard for me to follow along what I was trying to do. Because one thing jumps to another, in my mind anyway, to try to follow and make sense, or make more sense out of what I'm reading. Let's look at the first ten verses of Luke 7. When he had completed all his discourse, the Sermon on the Plain, in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders, asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and then he was not far and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying <coughs> to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So we've got a centurion who has a sick slave close to death. Originally, a centurion was a Roman officer who commanded a hundred soldiers, but that number varied over time. The nearest equivalent today is probably an army captain. I, I give you a prime example of, and it says these people, these centurions, they're all that in the Bible are all spoken well of, if you find over a number of them in the book of Acts, and every one of them are spoken well of. They were men of courage and integrity, and each of the centurions that the New Testament gives us any knowledge of is a man of character, and this particular one is a shining example. He loved the Jewish people in Capernaum, and he even built them a synagogue. He honored his servant and didn't want him to die. But even beyond that, what stands out is, is the humility. 
And when the centurion hears about Jesus, he sent some of the Jewish elders to ask Jesus to come and save his slave's life. One detail that's easy to overlook, but is important for us to notice, is that the centurion himself never came in contact with Jesus. First of all, the elders come asking Jesus to heal the centurion's servant. And then later, the centurion sends a, sends a group of his friends to say, Jesus, don't bother. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. Jesus, there's no contact between Jesus and the centurion himself. He only had his, only had contacts through two groups of intermediaries. Some Jewish and some Gentile. Jewish elders and the second group, the centurion's friends. So even this early, we see a bridge between two worlds, Jew and Gentiles, believing in the God of both and trusting that the word of Jesus had the power to move past any barrier between the two. We can also see from this that believers who were yet to come, who are yet to come, and haven't seen Jesus, but have believed his word, they're not at a disadvantage to the people that actually saw him and walked with him. Because the word accomplishes the will of the Lord. The word of Christ is present and effective at all times, in all places, and sustains the church to even today. Otherwise, the church could not survive having a past but not having a present. We would just have a book of fond memories of what Jesus once did and once said. Say that again. I said, if said the word of Christ is present and effective at all times and places and sustains the church. Otherwise, the church would not survive having a past, but no present. We would just have a book of fond memories of what Jesus once did and once said, but the word is alive. It's not a dead word. It's not without power. When the Jewish elders came to to Jesus, they said the centurion was worthy for Jesus to grant him his desire. That we need to look at that statement. He's worthy. Why is he worthy? He's worthy because of what he did. This is works salvation. None of us are worthy because of what we've done. We're worthy because Jesus says, You believe in me, you're worthy. You're only worthy because of what I do in you. You cannot do any works. I don't care what they are. They're like, what's it called? Trash, all kinds of words associated with it. Filthy rags. But these Jews, these Jewish elders, which these are not part of the, the greater number of Jews around, but these are the elders of the city. They say he's worthy. 
the only reason they could say he's worthy is because Jews for so much of the New Testament era and earlier, they'd lost their awe of of what God had done to them as a nation. And it so much had degenerated into we're Jews because God saved our nation. And I'm a Jew, so I, I don't have to do anything. And it's the last thing that was ever intended for them. They just had lost the awe and the understanding of what was required. Remember, the Pharisees, for the most part, refused to be baptized by John. They didn't have to repent. They were Jews. What what do I repent of? God's already called me. Anyway. One thing we know from Scripture... And from the Holy and from the Holy Spirit that resides within Christians is that Jesus is worthy, and in ourselves we are not. Psalms eighteen three says, "I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies." <coughs> Revelation five twelve says, "Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might." and honor, and glory, and blessing. It was as if the Jews were saying, you should help this centurion because of what he's done. Because of his works, you should help him. And then Jesus, a little later on, gives an example of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. The Pharisee stands there and says, Lord, boy, am I good. Look what I've done. I tithe all the time. I do this. I don't obey your law. And the tax collector sitting there won't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but just looks down at the ground and beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a matter of humility. Which, by the way, is exactly what this centurion shows. You know, Jesus of this tax collector said he went to his house justified. (coughs) Justified, cleared of guilt. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector is not worthy, and he knows it. And the centurion, centurion is not worthy, and he knows it too. He sends a group of his friends to meet Jesus and confess to him that he should come no further for the centurion is not worthy for Jesus to be under his roof. Just say the word, and his slave would be healed. Try to imagine how strange this is to see a Roman officer telling a poor Jewish rabbi that he was unworthy to enter his house. 
Romans were not known for displaying humility, especially toward their Jewish subjects. It's a miracle that this centurion is who he is. You know, only twice in the Gospels do we see where Jesus marveled. Here in Capernaum, in Capernaum, he marveled at the faith of a Gentile. And in Nazareth, he, he, remar- he marveled at the unbelief of the Jews. Another contrast is in the fact that the group from the centurion, by his orders, called Jesus Lord. You don't see the Jews calling him Lord. Another one of the things that I overlook if I'm not careful. The centurion sees great power in Jesus' word. He sees that his word, the centurion's word, carries authority because he himself is under a greater authority. And he sees that Jesus also operates under a greater authority. So he recognizes this, which nobody else recognizes. And Jesus responds to this by turning to the crowd and saying, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Nobody else at this point is seeing that Jesus is operating under a greater authority, the authority of his Father God. But the centurion recognizes it, it must, recognizes that it must be so. That I can only do things, not because of I'm such great authority, but because I'm operating under the authority of those over me. And he sees Jesus as operating under the authority of someone over him. And the only one over him is God. Jesus is amazed because no one in Israel has yet shown that kind of belief in him. And by the time, by the, time the messengers <clears throat> get back to the centurion's house, the servant is well. Even at a distance, a single word brings instant healing. And then Jesus travels to Nain to have a meeting with a widow who loses her son. And I think we will look at Luke 7 again later. But just imagine all the things that are right in front of us that we don't see. We spend two minutes reading ten verses. And you go, what did you read? Um, Let me think. Uh, Oh, yeah. Jesus and some Roman centurion that believes him. Okay. What else? <coughs> That's basically it. Well, it's not basically it either. It's basically you've missed most of it. <laughs> or I've missed most of it. And if anything <coughs> is instructing me and having to prepare a message is what I am missing, 
And that's why 10 verses takes me a while. Because I figure if I miss it, at least somebody's missing it too. Maybe not everybody. Maybe a lot of people are not as dense as I am. But nevertheless, just to uh, end on a positive note, I'll let you know whatever our son's name is. <laughs> Laugh, just like that. I do get uh, prophetic words constantly at home, <laughs> mainly from Anastasia. She was at the house yesterday in preparation for her and Pat to go <clears throat> to not a pottery place, but a place for different kind of Christmas bakery things and that sort of thing. Anyway, they off over close to Sanford. She walks in the door, 11 o'clock, and I turn around and she got a banana in her hand that she just picked up. And I said, that's my banana. And I, I normally charge $20 <laughs> for a banana. And she said, you owe me $100. I said, why do I owe you $100? She goes, because you're my dad. <laughs> and I figured, well, that's, that's prophetic. Then you just pay off the debt. Um, so I'll just keep you posted as to what Anastasia tells me about my future. This one's an ongoing one. Let's pray. Jesus, we are just so grateful. You know, it's been said, and I don't know how true it is, but what characterizes our life so often, and it is true for me anyway, is the way that we first meet you is a way that leads our life in the years to come. And um, Lord, for me, it was just a overpowering sense of who you are and the great forgiveness in your heart. And for other people, you do things different ways and um, accomplish different things over time, but Lord, I'm just great, grateful that you don't treat all of us the same. And I'm grateful that um, you're so, so compassionate, so full of humility yourself, the one that doesn't need to be humble. But you're humble, Lord, because, because it's your nature. It's your nature to be compassionate and humble and merciful. And Lord, uh, all we can do is just sing praises to you and give you thanks for your... It's what Jacob says, why do you ask me my name seeing as you're seeing as it's wonderful? And that's what your name is, Lord, it's wonderful and we're so grateful. Glory to be to God. Amen.